I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 3 to 14, we saw the longest sentence in all of Scripture, and I'm convinced it's not only the longest, it's probably the most profound of all statements in all of Scripture. And in it, Paul traces God's purposes from before the foundation of the world to the fullness of time as he lifts our riches in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have redemption, forgiveness, adoption as sons, and inheritance. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. But having said all that, Paul is obviously not satisfied because he doesn't go immediately into teaching us something new and he doesn't move immediately into an application. Instead, in verses 15 to 23, he prays for us. And the essence of that prayer is seen in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. Having listed all that we have, Paul prays that we'll understand it. Having told it out, he now prays it in. If I teach and you say amen, I shouldn't be satisfied with that. If I teach and you give mental assent to what I say, I should not be satisfied with that. If I teach and you say, you're the greatest teacher I've ever heard... I may be flattered, but I shouldn't be satisfied with that. If you're a parent or a Sunday school teacher and you've got your children to the point where they can parrot truth back to you, you'd better not be satisfied with that. Because spiritual truth, in order to have a spiritual impact, must penetrate the spirit. You see, it first arrives on the brain, and that's okay. That's where it has to be. But if it stays there... It's worthless. And there are some people who study the Bible, who can quote the Bible, who can answer all kinds of questions about the Bible, who can write a treatise on the Bible. But it's all in their brain. And it's never gotten to their heart. And so they've never grown spiritually. And Paul is intent on getting this truth from our heads to our hearts. And how does that happen? Well, he prays. For us. Now, the other apostles understood that as well because Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, they make this statement We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Those two go hand in hand. I have to minister the Word and I have to pray it into the hearts of people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul writing here to the church at Corinth says, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. God has prepared some wonderful things for us. Paul says, they cannot enter into the heart of man through the natural eye or the natural ear. So how do they get there? Verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. How do they get into our heart? The Spirit puts them there. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 1, we see Paul relying upon the Spirit in prayer to enlighten us regarding these truths. And those of us who have any capacity of teaching need to follow Paul's pattern here. Now, it's not an easy pattern. And a lot of preachers and teachers opt for a simpler path. 
Some preachers say, well, I don't even try to tell people about the deep things in Scripture because they can't handle it. And so what they end up giving you is a pep talk. They say, rah, rah, go get them, knock them dead. But you see, your enthusiasm isn't going to last very long if you don't have a foundation on which to stand. Your enthusiasm will only go so far if you don't have the truth to underlie that. When we first started a little boys basketball team, I was the coach. And on the first day of practice, I realized that I had a whole team full of guards. Because all they did was stand 20 feet away and shoot at the basket. So I spent the entire time of coaching trying to teach certain boys their position. You're a forward. You go in under the basket and you rebound. And it took me a whole season, but as a coach, the most pleasing moment would be near the end of the season when I'd actually see maybe one kid actually understanding the concept that I was trying to get through. See, if I spent all my time saying, rah, rah, go get them, we would have had five guards out there and lost every game. As it was, we won one or two. But see, in basketball, you have to understand your position. It's the same way in the Christian life. You can go out there all fired up, but if you don't understand your position in Jesus Christ, you're not going to get very far. You have to understand who you are in Christ in order to live that out. And that requires teaching, and that requires praying. Other preachers say, well, all this deep teaching is kind of dry and boring. People don't understand it anyway, so I just skip that and I just tell people what to do. And you can run into some preachers who will just give you a list of do's and don'ts. If they taught the book of Ephesians, they would skip the first three chapters and go right to the practical part about the Christian life and just give you that. But see, again, if you go out to obey the dictates of Scripture and you don't understand why, if you don't understand the foundation for that, you're not going to get very far. One of the things that struck me as my wife and I took the course Growing Kids God's Way was their emphasis on telling kids why they have to obey. And I was sort of in a pattern where I would always say, don't do that, stop that, put that down, and that would be the end of the conversation. And they said, you need to tell them stop, and then you need to sit down and tell them why they need to stop. Because if all I do is give them orders, they will obey in my presence, but when I'm gone, they probably won't obey. But if I tell them what to do and I give them a principle, I tell them why, then the likelihood is that even when I'm not there, they'll have a foundation on which to act. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is teaching foundational, positional truth, deep truth. Then he's praying that it'll get from our head to our hearts, and then he's going to say, therefore, let us live accordingly. Now, this morning, we want to look at Paul's prayer together, and I want us to note five things about it. The reason, the response, the relationship, the resource, and the request. First of all, the reason. Why does Paul pray for these people at this point in time? You say, well, they're probably real carnal people. They're probably disobedient to the Word, and so he's got to pray the truth from their head to their heart. Well, interestingly, that's not the case. Look at verse 15. For this reason, 
I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Why does he pray for them? Because he's heard two things about them. He's heard about their faith and he's heard about their love. Two positive things initiate this prayer. And those two things are the characteristics of every Christian. First is faith. And notice who the faith is in. It's faith in the Lord Jesus. A lot of people today, you hear them give their testimony and they say, well, I accepted Jesus as Savior, but I didn't accept Him as Lord. Well, you know, that's an interesting statement, but Scripture doesn't know that dichotomy. Because Jesus is Lord. And if you invite Him into your life, He doesn't come as somebody else. You can't say, come into my life as Savior, but please don't come as Lord. He doesn't come in parts. He comes as who He is. And Scripture is very clear that it is my admission that He is Lord that brings salvation. In one of the most common salvation verses, Romans 10, 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16, Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that in the coming day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christians have already bowed the knee and Christians have already confessed that Jesus is Lord. Now granted, when I received Jesus Christ, I didn't have a full understanding of all that He is and all that He requires as Lord. I still don't. I'm still in the process of that. But when I came to saving faith, I bowed the knee in repentance, saying, I'm not going my way anymore, I'm going your way. And I bowed the knee in submission to Him as Lord. And granted also, some Christians invite Jesus Christ into their life. And then they lose that first love for Him as Savior. And they rebel against that commitment to Him as Lord. But you see, their lovelessness makes Him no less Savior. And their disobedience makes Him no less Lord. See, my, my lack of appreciation and my lack of obedience doesn't change who He is. My level of appreciation changes. My obedience changes. He never does. He is Lord. And so they had faith in the Lord Jesus. The second thing it says about them is that they had love. Now faith and love always go together. Because if you have genuine saving faith, you will have love. And John said that in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. That's the evidence. And then John says, he who does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And what kind of love is it? John says in 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, love is not just some pleasant words. Love is not just a pleasant feeling. Love is doing what Jesus did. It's sacrificing yourself. It's laying down your life. And who do Christians love? Well, verse 15 says, your love for all the saints. 
I like that. It's not just the ones you interact with well. It's not just the ones that are sort of socially on your level that you get along with. It's not just the ones that are lovable. We love all the saints. Now, sometimes we like to spiritualize that. And we say, I love him in the Lord. What does that mean? That means I can't stand the guy. And I have no affection and no commitment for him, but since he's a Christian, I have this spiritual love for him in the Lord. Well, let me tell you something. You know what it means to love somebody in the Lord? It means to love them the way the Lord loves them. And that's genuinely and sacrificially. That is tangible and that is practical. And Paul hears about that from the people he's writing to. He hears that they have faith in the Lord Jesus and they have love for all the saints. Now, I wonder if he was writing a letter to our church, if he would hear that same report. I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. I hear about your love for all the saints. And you see, that is why he prays for them. He doesn't pray because they're spiritually decrepit. He prays because they're doing well spiritually. This is a prayer for every Christian. That's his reason. Second thing we see is his response in verse 16. How does Paul respond? I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, I'd like you to notice three things about Paul's response in prayer. Number one, he prayed constantly. Paul said, I do not cease. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, he exhorts us to pray without ceasing. And here we see him practicing what he preached. He didn't pray once or twice for them and quit. He didn't pray when he got around to it. He prayed constantly. Second thing we see about his response is that he prayed thankfully. He didn't come into God's presence with a whole bunch of requests. He started out giving thanks for what God had done for them, for the faith in their life, for the love that was being shown within them. He gives thanks. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here again, he practices what he preaches. And then the third thing we can note about his response is that he prayed unselfishly. Notice, he prays for you. And if you'll look in Scripture, you'll find that that is always the emphasis of prayer. It is always praying for others. Now, I wager that if we analyzed honestly our prayer life, we would have to say that it's sporadic, it contains mostly requests, and the most prominent pronoun is me. We need to learn something from Paul. Paul prayed constantly, thankfully, and unselfishly. That was his response. Third thing we see is the relationship. Verse 17. Most of us come to God in prayer and we call him Father. And that's right and proper because he has adopted us as sons. We have that privilege in prayer. But you know, I think we ought to stretch ourselves once in a while and use some other titles. The scripture's full of titles for God. When we come to prayer, it might be helpful to us to use other titles to remind us of who our God is. 
And it's interesting to me, on this occasion, when Paul comes asking God to move his truth from the heads of people to the hearts of people, he addresses God in two ways. First of all, he calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does he call him that? Well, I think it's a reminder that this is the same one upon whom Jesus depended for the enlightenment of his disciples. Jesus didn't just teach his disciples, he prayed for them that the truth would go from their brain to their heart. Remember the night before the cross? Peter was strutting around and he was saying, Lord, don't worry about me. I'll never leave you. These other rascals may cut and run, but you can count on me. And what did Jesus say to him? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, why did Jesus need to pray for Peter? I mean, he had taught him for over three years because all that truth was right up here. And so he prays for the reality to be experienced in his life. And then he calls him by a second title, and that is the Father of Glory. Now, that could mean the glorious Father, the Father who is glorious, and certainly it would, could take that meaning from this context because the conclusion of this long sentence in verses 3 to 14 ends with this phrase, to the praise of His glory. And so, surely it could have the idea of the glorious Father, but I tend to think what Paul is aiming at here is the idea of the Father who originates glory, or the one who begets glory, or the one who produces glory. When's the last time you were at a wedding? You go to a wedding and there's candles and there's flowers and, and there are these beautiful dresses and there's a lot of glory at a wedding. You go to the reception, there's decorations, there's food, there's cake. Somewhere in that room, amidst all that gala, you will find the father of the bride. He is the guy who's paying all the bills. And so for that one day, he is the father of glory. Some of you have been there. <laughs> You're still paying for it. He is the father of glory. And so as Paul comes in prayer, he calls God the Father of glory because He's the one who originates all this glorious truth and He is the one who can take that glorious truth from your head and make it glorious in your heart so that it's vivid and alive. And that's what He desires to do and that is what He is able to do. Fourth point, the resource. Verse 17, notice, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now the word spirit is the Greek word pneuma. It's used several different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it means the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it refers to the human spirit. And sometimes it refers to an evil spirit. Typically, if it has the article in front of it, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The article is not there in our passage. So we have to look in our passage and try to figure out what he's talking about from the context. 
And what he tells us in verse 17 is that he's asking God that this spirit be given to us. Now, that obviously would rule out any evil spirit. He's not talking about that. I think it would also rule out the Holy Spirit because back in verse 14, he told us that the Holy Spirit has already been given to you as a pledge. And obviously, it would rule out the human spirit because you already have a human spirit. You say, well, then what's he talking about? Well, there's one other way that this word is used in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to the very thing we sometimes use the word spirit for, and that is an attitude. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul spoke of having a spirit of faith. In Galatians 6.1, he told us to go to our brother who has stumbled in a spirit of gentleness, an attitude of gentleness. In Romans 11.8, Paul says that God gave Israel a spirit of stupor, an attitude of slumber. And so Paul is talking here, I believe, about an attitude. And what kind of attitude is it? It's an attitude of wisdom and revelation. Now those two words are very similar. Wisdom means understanding. It has the idea of seeing the big picture. Revelation means literally unveiling. It was a word used for an art exhibit when you would have a statue covered with a sheet and you would pull the sheet off and unveil that. It has the idea of seeing something that you have never seen before. And so wisdom is seeing the big picture. Revelation is seeing those things that you have never seen before because God unveils them for you. Now what I want you to see from this verse is that every Christian has the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the Holy Spirit. But not every Christian has a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Not every Christian has an attitude of wisdom and revelation. How do you get that? Well, Paul is showing us here because he's praying for it. And that prayer will be answered when the truth of God moves from your head to your heart. You say, well, how do I know if I've got it? Well, I think the same way you would know if you had a spirit of gentleness. You would know it and others would know it. Same way you would know if you had a spirit of faith. You would know it, others would know it. How do you know if you've got a spirit of wisdom and revelation? You'll be using it. And how will you be using it? Look at the end of verse 17. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What will happen if you have an attitude of wisdom and revelation? you will have as your primary desire knowing Him. That was Paul's aim in life. In Philippians 3.10, he put it this way, that I may know Him. And Jesus, in fact, said that that is life. In John 17.3, He said, This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Life is knowing God. And so if the goal of my life is to know Him, then I can realize that God's truth is going from my head to my heart because it is creating that attitude of wisdom and revelation that gives me a desire to know Him. If your goal in life is service, you're missing it. If your goal in life is experiences, you're missing it. If your goal in life is knowing the Word of God, you are missing it. Because the only goal that makes sense is knowing Him. 
And that's the result of truth moving from my head to my heart. See, when I say with David in Psalm 63, O God, Thou art my God, I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for Thee. My flesh yearns for Thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. When I start saying that, then I know that I have the resource that Paul is praying for. I have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Fifth thing about this prayer is the request. Verses 18 to 23. Notice verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of of his power toward us who believe. Now, what is Paul's request? He prays that the eyes of your heart may be opened so that you will know. Now, what is the heart? Well, the heart in Scripture seems to be the innermost part of man's being. We know that it's the place where your thoughts originate. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. We also know that it is the place of spiritual essence inside of me because we read in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. But we also know that it is the place where I believe. Because... Romans 10 10 says, with the heart, man believes. And that's very interesting in this context. Because what Paul is talking about is, he's praying that truth will move from your brain to your heart. What happens when it moves from my brain to my heart? I believe it. You see, throughout the Christian experience, I am learning new truths. They are in my brain. i got all kinds of them up here. But there's a process that goes on. Uh, Paul calls it in Romans 6, reckoning something to be true. See, I can know something, but by faith, it has to move down to my heart so that I believe it. It's one thing to talk about all these wonderful things that God has for me. It's another thing to believe it. And that happens when the Spirit of God takes that truth and reveals it to my heart. Here he says, he opens the eyes of your spirit. Did you know you had eyes in your heart? Paul's prayer is not for your physical eyes to be open, but for your spiritual eyes to be open, to understand and believe and receive God's truth. That's what happened to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were walking along on the road to Emmaus. The Bible tells us they were sad and forlorn. Jesus comes along and begins walking with them. The risen Christ is walking right beside them. They're still sad. And they tell him that they have heard a report that Jesus has risen from the dead. They have that truth in their brain. But they're still walking along, defeated, downcast, disappointed. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 31, we read this. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? What happened to them? Not only were their physical eyes open to see who he was, but their spiritual eyes of their heart were opened, and they describe it this way, 
our hearts were burning within us. That's the truth of God hitting the heart and faith responding. Now, there are a couple things that Paul's request indicate in verse 18. One is that knowing spiritual truth is not dependent upon having a high IQ. It's dependent upon having a tender heart. And I don't go around looking for people who are real brilliant to share scripture with them. I look for people who are respondent because they have a heart that is hungry. And the second thing I want us to note here is that Paul doesn't pray that we'll get something more. He prays that our eyes will be opened so that we will understand what we already have. In verses 3 to 14, he lists all our riches, and then he says, now I pray that you'll realize how rich you are. Because I don't want you to be eating cold oatmeal. I want you to understand your riches so that you apply them to your heart and faith so that you can cash them in your life. That's his prayer. And when our eyes are opened, he says, we'll know three things. The first is, verse 18, we will know what is the hope of his calling. Now, the call of God takes us back to the beginning of our salvation when He called us. But the idea of hope tells us that He called us with a purpose. Ever think about what God's purpose was in calling you? Well, I looked through my Bible this week, and I found some times when the Bible tells us what we were called for. It says in Galatians 5.13 that you were called to freedom. 2 Timothy 1.9 says he called us with a holy calling. And that's why 1 Corinthians 1.2 says we're saints by calling. We're holy ones by calling. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.15 says you were called into one body. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that God calls you into his own kingdom. And 1 Peter 5.10 says that God called you into his eternal glory. Now, that's pretty good. We've been called into freedom, holiness, fellowship, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, and eternal glory. But the best one I found in Romans chapter 8, familiar verse, verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what is his purpose? Next verse tells us. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. What is God's purpose? That I will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What a hope that is. John says it this way in 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he follows with this, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. What is our hope? It is what we've been called for. It is to be like Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.12 says, at one time we had no hope. Now we have the hope of his calling and the promises of God. And that's pretty solid because Romans 11:29 says for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God calls you, he can't change his mind. And he has called you in hope. All the promises of God. 
Second thing we'll know in verse 18 is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? If God's calling takes us back to the beginning, God's inheritance takes us to the end. When it says his inheritance, it's talking about the inheritance that he gives, just as his calling is the call that he gives. And we talked about last week what our inheritance is. It's all the promises of God in the future for which the Holy Spirit is given as our guarantee. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to just have that inheritance in your head. I want it to get down to your heart so that you believe it and experience it and live it out. Third thing we'll know, verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? God's call looks back to the beginning. God's inheritance looks to the end. God's power looks to the present. And where is his power? Well, it says in verse 19 that it's toward us who believe. And how much power is it? Well, look at the phrase. In my Bible, it translates it, the surpassing greatness of his power. Or yours may say, the exceeding greatness of his power. That word surpassing is an interesting Greek word. It comes from two, uh, two words. It's, uh, I knew if I tried to say it, I'd forget it. Huper uh, balo. I just wanted to impress you with that. Huper means beyond. Balo means to throw. And so he's given a little image here. He's talking about the greatness of God's power, but he says the greatness of his power overthrows greatness. So the picture is he's using a word greatness, but the power of God goes right over the head of greatness because it's greater than that. And that's the picture he's painting here. God's power can't even be described because it goes beyond greatness. You say, well, what kind of power is it? Well, he describes that to us in the rest of the passage. Look at the end of verse 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What kind of power is it? It's resurrection power. Did you realize that the very power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is working in your life. But he's not finished there. He goes on in verse 20 at the end to say, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's not just resurrection power, it is exaltation power. It's the power that took him to the right hand of the Father and set him there. But he doesn't stop there. Notice verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Any ruler, authority, power, or dominion, physical or spiritual, on this earth or in heaven, in the present or yet to come, are all under his feet. That is sovereign power. And we sit here today and say, I don't think I can overcome that sin in my life. Well, Paul says you need to get the eyes of your heart opened up so you understand how much power he has given you. It's resurrection power. It's exaltation power. It's sovereign power at work in your life. And it's not off in heaven somewhere. It's in you. How is that power manifested? Look at verse 22. He says, And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now this little phrase at the end here is the most profound statement I have found anywhere in Scripture. And I want to be careful in how far I go in trying to explain it. But he's saying here that Christ is supreme over everything. Now everything doesn't know it yet. Everybody has not bowed the knee yet. The demons have not been taken yet and thrown into the lake of fire. So he is sovereign over everything, but everything doesn't know it yet. But not only is he the sovereign over the universe, he is the head of the church. And the church knows it. We have bowed the knee to him. So the analogy is, he is the head, we are the body. Now there's only one thing that a body has to do. And that is to obey the dictates of the brain. If you're here this morning your body is not obeying the dictates of your brain, you need to go from here to see a doctor. Because your body listens to your head and responds. He is the head, we are the body. But what's exciting about this illustration is that Jesus doesn't just give us directives. He gives the power to carry them out. And then he finishes with this amazing statement at the end of verse 23. We are the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, what does that mean? Even though he fills all in all, he is not full without the church. Apart from the church, Christ is incomplete. Not in essence, but in function. And that's why he said to the disciples, you shall do greater things than me. And that's why Paul said in Colossians 1.24, I do my share on behalf of his body in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He is incomplete without us, just as a head is incomplete without the body, just as Adam was incomplete without Eve. Wow. You want a measure of how much God has blessed you with? It's captured in this amazing statement. God has so blessed us that we are the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. May God help that truth to go from our heads to our hearts.